So the study that we're going to do at the church, um, I got the material in already, which is really cool. Uh, it's a very small book because it's only four weeks. It's not like one of our normal 40-day, you know, six to seven-week studies. Um, all the hosts will get one of these DVDs. And uh, this is uh, Rick Warren teaching. And then uh, everybody that wants to be in a group will get, uh, you'll get one of these books and uh, it will cost you $7 and four weeks of your time. If for some reason you don't have $7, we'll provide the book for you, but most people should be able to come up with $7. Um, and then that's pretty much it. Um, you, it's not one of these things where you're studying and doing the book by yourself. The whole process is that you, you pay attention to whoever's moderating the group, whoever's hosting the group, and uh, they kind of give you direction as far as what you're gonna look at for the next week. And it's not, it's not that intensive, it's not that extensive, it's not that involved. You're not you know, learning some uh, huge theological truth or something like that, um, but it's important. It's really important. And as I said, uh, we were kind of in the midst of the pandemic when I decided that I wanted to do this. I got an email, uh, I belong to pastors.com, which is Rick Warren's organization. And uh, well, I'm, obviously he's the pastor of Saddleback Church, but uh, he probably has a greater ministry ministering to other pastors than he does even to his church because the pastors all over the world uh, pay attention to what he's doing. He's, he's a good teacher, frankly. Um, you know, I had a period of about 20 years where I was just jealous of Rick Warren and I wouldn't pay attention to him at all. And then I just gave in and said, oh, well, you know, he's good. He's better than me. It's fine. I'm, I'm okay with it. I, I, I'm fine. But in any event... Um, yeah, and plus he's in California, so you can't go to his church and leave mine. So I could say he's better than me, right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> you could if you, if you want to go to California, which I've said many times is a beautiful state with some terrible politics. And so, and I'm not trying to be, you know, all Republican, Democrat, whatever. It's just obvious that there are problems there when everybody's leaving California. So I didn't intend to get into that. Why did I do that? Um, nonetheless, that's what we're going to do. And just, uh, I'm excited that I already got this stuff. Now, um, I'm going to contact the people that have signed up to be hosts this week, and my goal is to introduce them to everybody on Sunday, not like you don't already know them, but say, hey, uh, you know, for instance, uh, the Composes said that they were going to host. Well, they have a home that's here in this area of North Garland, right? Uh, the Wilsons, they're always doing their stuff, and they're going to host. They're in Rowlett. Uh, um, I'm, 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 the, uh, I'm trying to say... The Hollicks uh, are in Saxe. Uh, the Reisingers are in Wiley. Uh, the, um, uh, what is Carlos's last name? Carlos and Enriqueta. The Aguileras. The Aguileras are out uh, Fate Royce City. And you're thinking, wow, that's really far out. We have a bunch of people that live out there now. So, and they, you know, come into our church 25 to 40 minutes on Sunday. So, my goal is to get groups established in these various locations that once this is over, uh, we'll meet once or twice a month at least. If a group wants to meet every week, that used to be our standard, then they can do that. But we can maintain connection and fellowship if groups will just say, minimum, we wanna continue meeting and we will agree that we will meet together at least once a month. And it will be fellowship for that. But once these groups are established, then when we want to do another study, 
then those groups are already there. Other people can, you know, gravitate into them and they can say, yeah, we want to do that study. And so then they can lock in for another four to six weeks and then they go back to once or twice a month. And I think that that should work, uh, should work well. I wanted to see this happen um, right as we were coming out of the pandemic, but this, this thing has just not let go of us. And uh, not that a lot of our people got sick this year. But the last previous two years, there weren't that many people getting sick. And I thought, well, if you met in smaller groups, then, you know, you could maintain your distancing, do all the stuff that you need to do and still stay connected rather than everybody being so isolated in their homes and watching on Zoom and, and all of that other stuff. Because you just, we really need that connection. It's important. Fellowship just doesn't happen. Social media doesn't provide fellowship online you know, meetings, all this, it's not the same as gathering with a group of people face to face and really being able to engage. So uh, this group on Wednesday functions to a degree as a small group, but my focus is not fellowship. We enjoy fellowship, um, you know, once the group breaks up, but my focus is discipleship. Now, it's not that one or the other uh, has to happen, but typically one is going to be taking precedence, right? And discipleship involves, you know, engaging in learning, right? So fellowship is participation and a lot of discussion. And there is definitely learning that happens with discussion. Uh, I was just talking a little bit earlier today. I was talking to our new youth ministry coordinator, uh, Nicholas, and he's never done anything like this. And I was just talking to him about youth ministry and uh, why it's important and so forth. And uh, I was talking to him about uh, the Socratic method. So any of you that have taught know the Socratic method, which means you're teaching by asking questions. But it's more difficult to do that when you're teaching the Bible because there are plenty of things that we just don't know. And so somebody like me gets educated or anybody else uh, decides to get a Bible study and sit down and go through the scripture and get the commentaries and you know, try to understand what's going on and provide the theological context and the historical context and the grammatical context and all these things. You don't hear me name in here on Wednesday, but that's what you're getting, right? You're getting a master's level theological discourse on these texts, but you don't have to get that in order to learn. So a small group can have both discipleship and fellowship happening, but it's going to last longer, okay? It's going to be like a two-hour group minimum. And sometimes our groups are so fond of being with each other that they end up staying really long. And then I call it buyer's remorse. Like everybody that came the previous week, they're like, eh, I can't spend three hours a week at somebody's house, you know? Back when they were single adults, uh, you know, and they were in their 20s and whatever, that's what they wanted to do all the time every week. But now everybody's got all these obligations. Well, not everybody. Some of us wouldn't mind hanging out for three hours. Um, but I really, really want uh, the the average time for one of these small groups to be 90 minutes, because I think that's something that people can say, okay, I can commit to. And then they just, you know, they say, okay, we're done. And then people can hang out for another 30 minutes or so, and that pushes it to two hours. But that way, we know what we're getting ourselves into. And you can have this fellowship, you can get to know people, and even people that you see every week in our church, that doesn't mean you necessarily know them. But when you get into a small group, you do. The other thing is, when I say small group, um, the Wilson's group, for example, has been as many as like 20 or 22 people. That's just too many people in a house, honestly. And their house is, they have 11 people living in their house and it's a big house. So, but it would be better 
the group would would move more smoothly, I think, if we can cap these groups at, and I'm not gonna tell people you have to leave if there's more than this, but if we cap these groups at, at eight, six or eight would be really pretty much ideal. Um, the smallest should be four. You get smaller than that and it's you don't have a group dynamic. So the very smallest should be four, the largest should be eight, and really six to eight is kind of the ideal. And uh, yeah, so we're restarting this. We haven't really had an active small group ministry in a while. Like I said, the pandemic has just been going on and causing problems for two years. And so I just really think that that's important. Important enough that I just spent seven minutes talking to you about it, <laughs> right? Um, so if you want to be in a group, uh, th this table that has the communion supplies on it is normally sitting out there, but the, the um, the sheet that the sign-up is on is on a clipboard, and it's sitting, as you go out the door, it's over on the left on, it looks like a table, but it's actually a tank that we use for baptism, and it's got burlap over it, but you'll see it sitting over there. Just sign it up. If I don't know you, put your phone number there, uh, and then ideally come Sunday, and I'll have different people stand up, introduce themselves, and so you'll see who they are. They'll tell you when they think their group is going to meet, because that's the other thing. The group doesn't have to meet at any particular time. It just needs to meet when those people can meet, right? So the host is gonna be the primary deciding factor because it's their house, right? So if you see, okay, like for instance, I know, uh, I don't know if they're gonna keep doing this, but in the past, the Wilsons have always met on Sunday afternoon. That was like a big time for our groups. Late afternoon, I'm talking like, uh, what, four, five o'clock, I think? Maybe that's not even called afternoon, is that evening? Um, uh, the, um, the Holics, in the past, their group has met on Friday night at like seven, I think. Um, and we've had, we've had groups meet on Saturday, like uh, late morning, like 10-ish in the past. So what I'm telling you is groups can meet whenever they want. And if people are local, if they're real close, if you wanted to meet during the week, I mean, you can do that because people are, whoop, they're right there. The reason why you know a lot of our people can't come on Wednesday is, as I said, they're living far away, they're working. I start this at seven promptly, but it's just like you know very difficult for them to get here uh, at that time. Although I'm going to make it easier, we're going to have our youth group. By the way, is going to start meeting again on Wednesday uh, next Wednesday. So Nicholas really, really wanted to start that group, and I think it's going to start off smaller because our our youth have kind of committed to different things on Wednesday, but I think we'll start with a, a, a good solid little group. And then any of the other young people that come in or who haven't been coming will be able to go and they meet right upstairs while we're down here. The reason I said that in conjunction with this group is because then people who might not normally come will, I hope, will come because their youth will be upstairs, all right? So with that in mind, we're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, the focus of our discussion tonight is gonna be the Lord's Supper and uh, you'll see the broader application of that. So let's pray before we jump into the text. Um, you always wanna make it a habit of uh, praying before you read the word, and uh, don't take that for granted. It's God's word, and he inspired it, so we want him to illuminate it, right? He wanted him to talk to us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity the, that we uh, are enabled to gather together. I pray for those that are joining us online, either now or later, and I pray that for all of us, we will have open minds and open hearts to receive your word. I pray that I will say what you want me to say, that what I say will help people to uh, 
to connect with your word and to pay attention to you and to take it with them as they go. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have your own copy of scripture, you can open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We started with verse 17 last week, and I'll reread that so we can be in context with the discussion. Um, but the, uh, the text will appear on the screen uh, to my right, or if you're online, it will be over here on your right on the screen, okay? Um, so uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version and uh, 1 Corinthians 11:17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes on ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Verse 23. So verse 23 through 26, uh, when we participate in communion, this is the passage that I and many other pastors use as a basis for what we do. For what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So bear that in mind, because we are going to uh, participate in communion this evening. I normally don't do that on Wednesday. I prefer to do it on Sunday with everybody here. But since we're talking about this, it just makes most sense to go ahead and do that, right? All right, that was verse 29. Verse 30, um, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's tough right there. Now verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Okay? So let's back up. We talked a lot about uh, the divisions that were occurring in their church and how these, in this text, were arising from economic disparity. There were people that were very wealthy and there were people that were very poor. And rather than coming together as a community, they were remaining with these distinctions. And the people that were wealthy were bringing their own feast, but they weren't sharing. They were in their own little group and then they were eating. And the people that were poor were waiting for church to start, basically. So it was like a potluck, except not everybody could participate. Uh, as I mentioned last week, and as those of you that are here know, when we do a potluck, everybody's welcome, okay? Uh, we did our fall festival, and we had everybody coming in here and eating the chili and all that. 
And when we have our Christmas thing, it's, it's the same thing. We bring a potluck, people bring enough so that everybody can eat and anybody can come in and eat and we're gonna share with everybody, right? Um, so that's the way a church should be. You shouldn't be making distinctions on the basis of, as we would say today, socioeconomic status. And honestly, it's, it is actually, believe it or not, when I was in seminary, we learned a principle of church growth and it's called the homogenous unit principle. And here's the reality. When people are alike, they gather and other people like them gather. When people are unalike, they have a tendency to want to remain separate. And so if somebody comes into a room and the people are unlike them, now you can break that down however you wanna break that down. You can break it down economically, you can break it down ethnically. Um, there's a lot of different ways you can break that down. But the reality is when you come into a room, these people are not like me. I don't feel like I belong here. Then the likelihood is you're not gonna come back, right? So I understand the principle, but the church of Jesus Christ has always been on everybody is welcome affair, right? It's everybody, we, we need to learn to get along with one another. We need to learn to understand one another and our various backgrounds that we're coming from. We need to learn to love one another. The only division should come when people refuse to obey the scripture or they refuse to believe uh, that Jesus is Lord, uh, that God is, is one God. Um, they reject the basic uh, theology that we present. And that's why uh, he says uh, that he understands that there are factions um, let me say, no, verse 19, for there, he says there, he doesn't say, I understand, this is even stronger language, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he knew that this was going to be the case. If there are people that are not believing the word, then there are going to be divisions. And it's not that we want to support division, but this is why Jesus said, uh, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He brings peace among his people, right? But the sort of division happens when you know you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you don't confess that, then of course there's going to be division. Now listen to what uh, John said in his letter, 1 John 2, 19 through 23, about this. He said, they went out from us. He's talking about those that left the church that he was responsible for. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Right? And then he says uh, to them, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. So the reality is we want to love people and we want to be accepting to everyone. But if people leave because they disagree morally or theologically, then we have to let them go. It's not that we don't love them, but we recognize that you have to start lowering too many barriers and pretty soon the church of Jesus Christ is no longer the church of Jesus Christ. It becomes unholy. It becomes common. And we're going to discuss that at length uh, shortly. Okay. So he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Even though they were observing the table of the Lord as we will tonight, he said, no, that's not what you're doing. It's a pretense. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Now understand that the Lord's Supper arose out of the Passover. And the Passover is 
a, an observance and a memorial meal that to, down to our day, the Jewish people participate in remembering their deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And it's a very extensive meal. If you participate in a Passover today, it lasts four hours. A standard Passover meal in a Jewish home. And by the way, the Passover is observed in homes. You don't go to the synagogue to observe the Passover. You go to a home. And it's just like these small groups that we're doing, right? You have host homes. That's exactly what happens. Somebody hosts the Passover. And there are very, very specific things that happen. But there are four cups that are uh, of wine, little partial cups of wine, that are drunk throughout the, the meal. And the final cup is the cup that Jesus used to uh, inaugurate the, the, uh, the Lord's Supper, right? So the Passover was a meal and it became the Lord's Supper. So these people were, they were enjoying fellowship and they were hanging out, but the Lord's Supper, rather than central to their gathering, became just something else that they were doing. Oh yeah, we're here. And honestly, I mean, I'll get to this in a minute. I gotta be careful or I'm gonna end up repeating myself. But, you know, I don't know how many times you've observed the Lord's Supper or communion in a church, but for me, a lot of times, it's just not terribly spiritual. I want it to be, but sometimes it's just, you get hung up in, uh, you know, oh, what does this taste like? You know, or oh, that's getting stuck in my tooth. Or, you know, there's people around you that are causing distractions and so forth. And we got to be careful. It's better not to observe the Lord's Supper than to fail to recognize what it means. That's what it means to discern the body, right? So there are a number of problems that are evident here. He says, in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or you just, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? No, I will not. So here are the, the problems in evidence here. Number one, the Lord's Supper was not treated with proper respect. It was being used as an excuse for people getting together. That's a lot of things at church, right? It's like, you know, some people that you want to get together with are going to be at church. Ah, why not? I'll go to church, right? But that's, uh, fellowship is important. So we're going to have these small groups, but that's not why we go to church. We go to church to gather with the people of God to worship God, right? So yeah, it was just an excuse for people to get together and they were not remembering the sacrifice of Jesus or offering him worship. Number two, they gave their own meal priority over the Lord's Supper, which demonstrates a kind of idolatry, really. Oh yeah, look at what I brought, you know, and here it is on, oh no, we're not sharing with you, okay? Number three, the wealthy ignored the poor. The church was composed of a diversity, as I said earlier, and wealthy people could afford to bring a lot of good food and they failed to offer any of it to the poor, which I find appalling, frankly. Number four, excess was evident. Gluttony is not named, but drunkenness is. Can you imagine the wine? Let, let's just understand something. The wine that they drank, drank drunk, um, did have alcohol in it, but it didn't even have as much alcohol in it as most beers have today. So, you know, you had to drink quite a bit. And plus, that's what they drank every day. So they would have had an incredible tolerance to this. So for some of them to be getting drunk, they had to have been there for quite a while and been drinking quite a bit of this wine, right? Um, and number five, on the whole, this gathering was just a flat out sacrilege. It demonstrates contempt for the church and for the table of the Lord. Um, the scriptures we read above, 
uh, or we can read scriptures from the prophets that would apply. And here's one from Hosea 1.10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar. That would be the sacrificial altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So I think Paul would agree with Hosea there, and he would say, well, he did say, you're not observing the Lord's table. Just, you might as well not be doing this. Um, In passing, let's just be honest. Income inequality is a reality. And this is why the siren song of socialism is an ever-present temptation. There are many problems with socialism, but understand why it is a source of temptation for people and why it often fails in various societies. Um, Here are principles from the scripture. Number one, Jesus said the worker is worthy of his wage. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 10. And uh, Paul repeated that and applied that teaching in 1 Timothy 5.18. When we were in 1 Timothy, we observed that. Um, This teaching from Jesus is reinforced by, by Paul. So if you work, you're worthy of your wage. Those who have more should be willing to share with those who have less. This was common in the primitive church. Listen to what happened. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they would sell their property and possessions and share them with all to the extent that anyone had need. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now understand, that sounds like communism, but this is what they chose to do. This isn't what the government did to them. The government didn't descend on them and say, we own everything, right? We own the means of production and we'll tell you what you can have. That's not what happened. They had private property. They worked hard. The worker is worthy of his wage. These were people that was their property, that was their money, and this is what they chose to do of their own free will. Okay? Um, Listen to the result of that. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was poured out on them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each to the extent that they had any need. Now, um, this was not something that was required. It was something that they chose. And this was a group of Jesus followers sharing what they have. However, this charity was only for those genuinely in need. Listen to this. Paul taught that people must be willing to work, not lay about and do nothing. Laziness, my friends, is sin, right? Listen to what uh, the Apostle Paul taught in 2 Thessalonians. He said, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work, but acting like busybodies. Now we command and exhort such persons in the Lord Jesus Christ to work peacefully and eat their own bread. So you have these two principles. The worker is worthy of his wage. And if a person is not willing to work, then they shall not eat. So there was uh, in the early church, for example, Uh, they would take care of their widows. So back then, it was very difficult for a woman to get a means of support once her husband passed away. And so a widow who was unable to remarry after her husband died would go to the church and the church would provide for her. 
But Paul is very strict about this in saying that widows who are taking money from the church, but yet going around and, you know, looking for a husband, he said, no, don't give them the, they should not be on the list because they are already seeking other opportunities, if you will. So there has to be genuine need, and the people who are being offered these opportunities need to be willing to work, okay? Um, but we need to you know, look at our resources and be willing to share as we are able to do so, right? So then um, the next passage, verses 23 through 26, is about the Lord's Supper itself, and I'm gonna jump back to that, okay? It's just that passage where he says, for what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that on the night the Lord was betrayed, he you know, broke the bread and they drank the wine. We're gonna come back to that when we get to the table of the Lord. What I wanna do is I wanna jump down some verses to verse 27, because one of the things that I often do when we have a Lord's Supper service is go to this passage prior to the previous passage, because it's where the caution comes in. This is where we have to all think, okay, what do I need to pay attention to, Lord? How do I need to judge myself? What do I need to repent of, Lord? Is there any sin that I'm not calling sin? Are there any practices in my life that I'm uh, continuing to pursue and that's not your will? Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That's tough. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So often, when we're doing this in a worship service on Sunday, when I have the band up here, uh, I'll have them play a song before I even open the table of the Lord. And during that song, I encourage people to look inside themselves, to ask the Lord to shine his light in their heart and in their mind, so that they can go through that period of confession, right? As if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But we need to come to the table of the Lord confessed up. We need to come to the table of the Lord with repentance, right? Um, Leon Morris in the Tyndale New Testament commentary in discussing this uh, passage said, says, it is when we neglect this that we come in an unworthy manner and sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Instead of proclaiming the Lord's death, we then misuse the symbols of that death and share the guilt of those who put Jesus to death. That's tough, but I mean, you know, we need to examine ourselves and then Paul gets more strict, more specific. Uh, verse 29, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Then he goes even further. What does that mean? He said, well, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, if we examined ourselves honestly, then we would not need to be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. That's why we take time to confess our sins before we partake of the Lord's Supper. To be quote unquote guilty of the body and blood of the Lord is to make necessary that sacrifice all over again. I'm not saying that Christ must be offered again. Our Catholic friends believe in what is known as the sacrifice of the mass. Um, how many of you have a Catholic history or background? Okay, so the sacrifice of the mass is an understanding that each time a mass occurs that mystically 
spiritually, if you will, Christ is sacrificed again. There is a, uh, a theological belief called transubstantiation, big word, right? But it means that when the priest uh, proclaims the, uh, the words of ordinance over the, the wafer and breaks it, they believe that, the, that that literally becomes the body of Christ, right? That's transubstantiation. Martin Luther came along and said, no, the presence of Christ is with the, the Eucharist. That's what they call it, the Eucharist. But it doesn't literally become the body of the Lord. And then there, was a, there were other reformers that came along later and said, well, no, it's, it, is a, it is a symbol. It has very, very deep spiritual meaning, but is, it is a symbol. So um, we need to observe the Lord's Supper with the, the realization that the presence of Christ is with us, that the Holy Spirit is present within us. And we need to ask him to help us to discern the body, to make it real to us, right? So that I connect with the death of Jesus when I eat that that uh, wafer so that I, uh, we use matzah bread, which is probably what they ate at the Lord's Supper table, right? It's traditional uh, Jewish unleavened bread. So when you eat that matzah, you're really trying to connect with the reality that Jesus was lashed with whips and that he was uh, literally nailed to a cross and that he suffered and bled and died for you. And then when I drink that cup, I recognize that, you know, Every covenant was established with blood in the Old Testament, right? In fact, that's why it says in Hebrews, uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Here's why. The Hebrews understood the life is in the blood. This goes all the way back to Noah. So after the, on the, when they're on the other side of the flood and Noah finally comes out of the ark um, with, his, uh, with his kids, and uh, their spouses, and you know the animals come out of the ark and so forth. God is very, very explicit. He says, now, if a person, a man, he says a man, but this means any person, if a person sheds another person's blood, then by a person will that person's blood be shed. If a man sheds blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, life is sacred, and if you take a life, you owe your life. And they understood the life is in the blood. And this is why they were very careful about how they slaughtered an animal. They slaughtered it, they hung it upside down, they let it completely bleed out. They would not eat rare meat. They wouldn't eat anything with the blood in it at all. Uh, this is just a, a very, very big deal, and it is to many Jewish people, Orthodox Jewish people down to our day. What I like about that is this incredible respect for life. And if we had a respect for life like that, we wouldn't be seeing, you know, abortion is just something that is, you know, considered passe. It's like, well, it's just, you know, it's a right and it can happen and this sort of thing. But we would, we would consider life to be sacred all the way across the, the board, right? From the time of conception all the way till the time of death. And the only way that we would support capital punishment is if it can be proven without a shadow of a doubt that that person was responsible for premeditatively taking another person's life. And this is all application of scriptural principles, right? But I bring all that out because when we, when we drink the cup, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
Well, it's not literally his blood, but we're recognizing that the blood that established this new covenant with God is the blood of Jesus, the blood that washes away our sin, but the blood that guarantees grace for you and I, right? Why? Because the soul that sins, it will surely die. That's all the way back to the Old Testament. For the wages of sin is death. When you sin, you owe, it, you owe your life for that sin, okay? The wages of sin is death. And we die in little ways every day when we sin. And eventually, ultimately, that's why we die physically, right? Uh, there's just this inexplicable transformation that takes place somewhere in your early 20s when cell reduplication slows and eventually cells start dying faster than they can be replenished. That's why we grow old. That's why we have all the issues that we have. Why do we have wrinkles? Well, we have wrinkles because our skin begins to sag and it loses contact uh, with, the, with the, the bone structure and the muscle structure underneath it. I'm pressing my face because I know it's wrinkled and that's why I have a beard and that's why I'm happy to have a beard, okay? But that's what's happening. These little connections that are, you know, are there when you're younger, they begin to lose. You lose your hair. At least some of us do. Uh, men do in particular. All of the sorts of things that we endure are taking place as the result of that gradual death. Well, you know, in the end, that's a biological reality. But the theological reason for that is because we sin and we're in a fallen world. Um, this is, you know, we can look at these, these early ancestors of human beings that are in the Old Testament, um, you know, before Noah as an example, and they're living ridiculous amounts of time, right? In fact, it's hard to wrap your mind around. You know, you got Methuselah who lives 969 years. I'm fixing to turn 60. I'm tired right now. I can't imagine 969 years. Are you kidding me right now, right? But people gradually lived less and less and less and less until by the time uh, Moses writes Psalm 90, it is very, very explicit that a, the average age that someone was going to die was between 70 and 80. Well, most of us are outliving that today. Um, you know, there are people that are living up into their 90s or even up into 100. But really, you know, things just start slowing down and we've got to deal with that. But that's why we can receive the gift of eternal life and God can turn that around. We can be reborn spiritually. And then ultimately, Jesus was raised from the dead. And you and I, if we confess Jesus, and we confess our sin to Jesus, then we receive that gift of eternal life. And even though we die to this old life here, we know that we're looking forward to a resurrected life in eternity with him. So that's why we partake of that cup. It is the new covenant in his blood. We recognize that the only reason we have access to the Father is because of what Jesus did on that cross, because he shed his blood and by that blood established a covenant between himself and the Lord to let you and I in, right? So I started off, the wages of sin is death, but the other half of that verse, Romans 6.23, is but, but, very important but, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, right? Um, so, you need to understand that Jesus' blood was shed for you, and that either saves you or further condemns you, depending on what you choose to do with that. There's a, an interesting line to a, a song that was sung by a Christian rock band back in the 80s, and it went, all over me, all over me, I've got the blood of an innocent man all over me. 
So ponder that for a second. If I believe that Jesus died in my place, that he took my sin upon him, and then he died so that I can be in the presence of God, then having the blood of an innocent man all over me is a good thing. But if I've rejected that, then I've got blood on my hands, like Pilate who tried to wash his hands, right? And put this idea of being responsible for Jesus' death away. Well, Jesus took my sin upon him, whether I like it or not, that's what he did. I need to receive that to receive the benefit from it. If I reject that, then the reality is I am turning away God's only offer of grace and mercy for me. So that's what we're looking at when we're, we're looking at the, uh, the Lord's Supper, right? Um, we need to pay attention to it because we don't want to take advantage of this grace that's being offered. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans. Uh, I quoted uh, a little later in Romans, Romans 6.23. This is Romans 6.1 and 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? So see, when we take the, the, the cup and when we take the, the wafer or we take the, the, the bread, we recognize that Jesus died for us. Baptism teaches us that we are in Christ and in Christ we die to this old life. We die to our old self. And we can realize that when we take the, the table of the Lord as well, that this, this is not, this is Jesus, but this also means that I've died. I've died to all this old junk, all these temptations that may be flying my way, all of these big and little mistakes that I may have made throughout the day. No, all my sin went on Jesus. And so I'm dead too, to that old life, to that old way. But I, I have a new life and I have a new way now. We've got to open our hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit as he makes Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross real to us. That's the main thing. When we get to this in a moment, I, I want it to be real for you. I want you to transcend the, the, the taste of the, of the matzah and the, the taste of the, of the juice, right? Um, it's kosher stuff, right? So if you just want to talk about ingredients and what they are, it's, it's kosher matzah bread. It's just a flat bread, very, very simple ingredients uh, that the recipe goes all the way back to, to Jesus' day. And we're using kidem, which is kosher grape juice. It's not wine. Um, I discovered many years ago that there are plenty of people who come to our services and they have alcohol problems and even taking a little bit of alcohol can be a trigger to pull them back into that and I don't want to be responsible for that at all. Plus, I want children to be able to partake of it and I don't want their parents to be freaking out because they're drinking wine. All right. Uh, we're not like, you know, these folks in Jesus' day. I mean, children were drinking wine, but it had two, three percent alcohol in it and they were drinking small amounts and sometimes it was diluted with water. Today, I mean, a wine is going to have anywhere from 7 to 14.5% alcohol, and that's not something we want to be given to our kids, right? So that's the, that's the real, you know, material ingredients that you'll be partaking of if you choose to. But I want you to take a step away from that and allow the realization to dawn on you that, wow, this is what Jesus did for me. This is what it cost God to give me eternal life in heaven, right? So he says, let a person examine himself. The word uh, used here for examine is often used in Greek to refer the, to the testing of precious metals. So this is why, why you're, why you're listening to me right now, I, I hope you're kind of thinking through these things and beginning the process of examining yourself. 
right? So this word uh, was used to refer to testing metal, to make to test the purity of it. It may mean to, quote, test the genuineness of something. So uh, Paul uses this very same word in 2 Corinthians, the next Corinthian letter, and the last chapter, chapter 13, in verse 5, he says, test yourselves. It's the same word, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. So it's imperative that you have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ before you step up here and decide that you want to partake of this. This is why I rarely bring the elements out to people because I don't want somebody to feel obligated, well, everybody else around me is doing this, so I'm just gonna do what everybody else is doing. No, I want you to make a decision, and in a moment when we open the table of the Lord, you don't have to come up here. Nobody's gonna think one thing or the other. It's entirely up to you. But you need to be a believer, and if you partake at the table of the Lord, you also need to be willing to put yourself in a position to be baptized by immersion, if you haven't been yet, because you're saying, I put faith in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus, right? And so this is, uh, these are the two, we, we call them ordinances because Jesus ordered them to take place, right? Now, I used to practice what is called close communion, which would mean you have to be baptized by immersion after you've come to know Jesus, before you partake of the table. I don't require that anymore. I just require that people have a genuine relationship with Jesus. Now, that could be something you establish tonight. You could choose to open your heart and confess Jesus as Lord and establish that tonight, right? That happened with a young man in this church. This wonderful woman of God right here was sitting over here. The chairs might've been configured a little differently. And he was a young man that I'd been mentoring for quite a while. And uh, Miss Mary, uh, I preached a very, very straightforward gospel message that morning, and Miss Mary just turned over to him, and you can get the straight story from her, and she asked him if he wanted to accept the Lord into his heart. And I'd been talking to him for a couple of years at that point, and, you know, he was always, oh, Pastor D, come on, you know, and, and he did. He prayed. And then right after he prayed, we did communion that day, and it was, uh, it was uh, um, Palm Sunday was the Sunday before Easter. And he came down the aisle, and I'm not kidding you, he had this, it was this hairstyle that was very popular several years ago, like just huge hair on the top, just huge puffy hair, right? And they're real short on the sides, it's kind of popular now. But I'm saying this because I remember, because I was praying like this, and I hear, Pastor D. And I look up, and here's this huge hair hanging down there. And he goes, what do I do? <laughs> I said, well, I said, you know, if you've chosen to put faith in Jesus, you know, you partake of the, you know, the, the cup and the bread, and I handed them to him. And I can't remember, I can't remember if he ate it there, came up here, went back to his seat. I don't remember. Um, but he partook. Well, it's a blessing that that happened because uh, that was in April, and he died in May. He was... 17 years old, and he died in a rollover, a rollover accident in May. So none of us knows how long we've got, friends. We really, really don't. It's very important. So discern the body of the Lord. <laughs> Examine yourself. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment 
What does discerning the body mean? Well, the Greek word for discerning here means to differentiate, to conclude that there is a difference or to make a distinction. So we need to discern the body and blood of Christ when we eat the supper. We must recognize that the bread, what the bread and wine, we need to recognize what the bread and wine symbolize, that it's just not a cracker and some juice, right? We need to engage in that process. To discern the body in the elements means we consider them holy. Ah, that's something that's utterly passed off the, the horizon in our world, holy. That means it's separate from the mundane. It's separate from the common, from the everyday. That's what the Corinthians were not doing. They ate their own meals and the Lord's Supper without distinction. Food, food, okay, right? While we would not hold as the Catholics do that the bread literally becomes Christ's body and the wine his blood, we must still recognize the sacred nature of the elements and the reality that they represent the sacrifice of our Lord. Failing to do so has dire consequences. So, these consequences as discipline for the people of God. So what happens if you've partaken of the Lord's Supper in the past and you didn't discern the body? What happens if you've partaken of the Lord's Supper in the past and you didn't confess your sins, right? Well, it doesn't mean that you're suddenly not saved. If you have faith in Jesus, you're saved. What happens when you and I are judged, if we're in Christ, right, right, is we are disciplined as a father would discipline his children. Right? So, you know, when your children are younger and they do something wrong, then, you know, you take them through a process of, of training and discipline. Uh, some folks will swat their kids' butt when, it, when the child is younger. Others have other sorts of discipline. But you're seeking to train them to change. That's what God's going to teach us to do. And many of the things that we go through are intended to be teaching tools, right? And that's what he is saying here when he says, you know, uh, many of you have been sick or you've, you've died and you've gone through these difficulties. Now, that's not to say that every time you're sick, you're being disciplined either. There is always an opportunity to learn when you're sick, right? But um, we err if we understand this to be punishment from the Lord. That's not the same as discipline. Punishment is getting what you deserve, right? You did something wrong, now you're gonna get what you deserve. That's the idea that many people have about our uh, penitentiary system, right? It's punitive in nature. The penal system is what they call it. And that comes from the word for punishment, right? In fact, one of the theories of atonement, that is why Jesus died on the cross, is called penal substitution. P-E-N-A-L, and it comes, it's like the same root word as the word penalty. You are undergoing, receiving the penalty for what you did wrong. And we're kind of used to that, right? You did this, you get this. Jesus took all of the penalty for our wrongdoing on himself. So when you are in Christ, you're no longer going to be punished as in receiving a penalty for what you've done wrong, but you will be disciplined. Listen to what Hebrews 12, 5 through 11 says about that discipline. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So if you're not disciplined when you do wrong, you're not really his kid. That's what it amounts to. Um, you show a lack of care when you don't discipline your children when they do wrong. Verse 9, besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the, mo for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So um, in 1 Corinthians, that's what we're talking about when he says judgment will come upon someone. You need to judge yourself. You need to look at yourself, examine yourself, and confess your sins, and then that judgment isn't going to come upon you. Now, I have a lot more here, but we're, our time is getting away, with, uh, getting away from us, and I want to make sure that we're able to participate. But let me just, in conclusion, let me just say one thing about uh, discerning what is holy from what is common. Um, the problem today is people don't fear God. They don't look at what belongs to God as something that we need to respect, right? Why don't we fear God? Because we don't experience his presence. We don't believe. We're more concerned with the approval of our fellow human beings than the approval of God. In our world today, we're concerned about offending everyone except God, whom people ignore and even speak against with seeming impunity. However, judgment day is coming. Everything will come to light and be recompensed then. Like the Corinthians at the Lord's Supper, many have failed to recognize God as holy and deserving of ultimate honor and exclusive worship. This is evident in the inability, or worse, the unwillingness to distinguish between holy and the profane. The profane is a stronger word that refers to what is just common, right? Um, it is a problem, not only at the Lord's Supper table, but when people enter into the place of worship, sing. Uh, they sing songs that are supposedly praise and worship to God, but they're just not engaging. They're not paying attention. Maybe they're not singing at all. Or they sit distractedly as the word of God is being taught. Um, there's a doctrine that may have gone to seed among Protestants, namely that everything in the world is holy. Well, it's a reaction to a hard dichotomy in the church in earlier generations uh, where there was you know, holy and profane and so when you were out in the world, you could just act worldly. You only have to pay attention and, and act spiritual or act holy when you're in the church house, right? But that's not what we want to say. For you as a believer, everywhere you put your feet becomes holy. Your body is holy because anything that belongs to the Lord is holy. I can't make myself holy. Holy means separate from the world, and that means that he separated me from the world. We're in the world, we're not of it. So we're not gonna be like monks and move out uh, into the wilderness and you know live in, in caves or little tents or, or whatever. We're in the world, and we've got to deal with mundane things every single day. But I want you to understand that if you follow Jesus, everything you touch can be holy. Um, but that doesn't mean everything in the world is holy. Um, in fact, I want you to think about this. If everything is holy, then really everything is common. If everything is holy, nothing is holy. That's the definition of common, not holy. 
We're refusing to make a distinction to distinguish between what is devoted to God and what is not. There it is, really. What is devoted to God and what is not. So take everything you have. Your technology, your home, your car, your whatever you have. And formally, between you and the Lord, Lord, I want you to know this is yours. I want you to do whatever you want to do with it. I'm yours. My body's yours. My home is yours. This is all yours. Now, direct me. Guide me. Help me to understand what I need to do with it. Some of us have more. Some of us have less. Again, dedicate it all to the Lord, and then it becomes holy. And then learn to distinguish between what is holy and what is not. Um, you know, I was... I. I I try to be so careful about entertainment. I don't have cable or anything like that, uh, but I re-upped my Netflix uh, not too long ago so I could watch, uh, I'm sorry, Cobra Kai. Okay, so, yes. I watched The Karate Kid back in the day, and this is just greatness. It's just complete greatness, I'm sorry. And so I still have it, and uh, so I kept seeing this, this advertisement for this program called The Witcher. The Witcher. I was like, what is this? I watched a little bit of this. Oh my goodness. You can let so much horrific stuff into your home and you could kind of put it to the side or whatever. I'm not even going to encourage by telling you what I turned the thing off after seeing. I just thought, wh why? Why? Why is this? Why are people entertained by this, right? But we allow this common, profane, unclean, ugliness to come into our home, even if everything else we've got in our home is the way it should be. But, you know, you can allow this to come into your life, into your home, into your mind, uh, via your entertainment. Uh, you know, video games are another big one with kids and, and even young men in particular on up into their 30s and even 40s. Um, I, I, I was around when video games first started out. It was at the arcade and all that. I've never been good at them, so it's never been a temptation for me. And some of them are harmless and, you know, they can just waste time, but others are horrific, you know? Um, and so I won't get into that and, and uh, you know, try to make, you know, one video game seem better than the other or whatever. But I'll end with this. The priests in the Old Testament were tasked with teaching the people the difference between the sacred and the common. In, Levit in Leviticus 10, 10, and 11, it says... And he's teaching the priests. Moses is teaching the priests. And Moses says to these Levitic, Levitical priests, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them through Moses. Well, later they failed to do this. And Israel failed to distinguish, just like the Corinthians were failing to distinguish the table of the Lord, right? And so then in Ezekiel, Ezekiel writes this from the Lord. Her priests, this is talking about Israel, her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Well, that was the reason why God established the Sabbath to begin with, was to separate his people out from all of the peoples on the earth. So, we may have different ways of symbolizing the holy from the unholy. But on the whole, obeying Christ, following Jesus, that's what we need to do, and that's what we need to observe in order to be holy, okay? So, um, 
I'm going to conclude here because I want to have an opportunity to partake at the table of the Lord. Those that joined us online, thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope you might come to church someday and be with us in person. God bless you.